Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 45. Isaiah 45. We're going to read from verse 11 of the passage uh, through to the end of the chapter. And then we're also going to turn again to the book of Revelation as we continue our series uh, looking at the seven churches of Revelation. So Isaiah chapter 45, first of all, um, we read from verse 11. Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 11. The book of Isaiah is sometimes referred to as the fifth gospel. Uh, So clearly and frequently does it point us toward the Lord Jesus Christ with very specific prophecies that only make sense through uh, the coming of Jesus into the world. And in in, in the section really from chapter 40 onwards, we have particularly vivid and clear prophecies about not only the person of Jesus, but also the impact of his coming and of his kingdom in the world. Isaiah 45, and we read from verse 11. Let's hear God's word. Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hand that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God besides him. Truly, you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry out their wooden idols and and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a savior. There, There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified 
and shall glory. <coughs> Amen. Then we turn also to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 7 to 13. Verses 7 to 13. This is the sixth of the seven letters that Jesus sent to seven congregations in what was known as Asia Minor, uh, today the land of Turkey. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole earth to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. This is God's word. And please keep your Bibles open there at Revelation chapter 3. Um, we're looking today at these verses we've just read, the, the letter to Philadelphia, uh, verses 7 to 13. And our theme this morning is an open door. An open door. Well, Friday the 9th of October 2020 is a date that will probably always uh, stick out in my mind. It was the day that Hannah and I finally got the keys to our very own property. And I remember driving over to Korean and going to the estate agents and finally hearing the clink as the keys were placed in my hand. Uh, buying a house can be a drawn out process, as some of you probably know. It can be a bit of a test of patience. There's a, lot, there's a lot to go through before you have a house in your own name. But at some point, you finally get given a date, a date on which you will get the keys. And that becomes the date that you tell everyone about, and you're looking forward to it, and it's set in your minds, finally, the day that we get the keys. Why is that so significant? Well, it's because to have the keys to something means that you have control over it. You have authority over it. You have ultimate say in it. The key holder gets to decide who's welcomed in and who stays out, how a piece of property is used and who uses it. The key holder has authority over the house. And among other things, Jesus in his letter to the church in Philadelphia describes himself as a key holder. If you look at chapter three, verse seven, the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. 
To the church in Philadelphia, Jesus emphasizes his authority and his control, not just over them, but over the whole world, with the kingdom of God in particular. In chapter 1, verse 18, Jesus described himself as holding the keys of death and Hades. And here in chapter 3, verse 7, he says he has the key of David. And the name of King David, of course, is a name that the readers would have associated with majesty and power and strength and, of course, a kingdom. And Jesus, as he has described several times in Revelation, is the son of David, David's true heir, the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords. And all of this is emphasizing, friends, that Jesus has authority to open the door to the kingdom of God and to welcome his people in. How does Jesus welcome people into the kingdom of God? What does he, what does he use? Where is the open door for people to come in? Well, primarily, Jesus brings people into his kingdom through the witness of the church. And as we'll see just now, Jesus does not need his churches to be particularly impressive, powerful, or popular for them to be a, a doorway into the kingdom. Jesus doesn't confine himself to using only churches with lots of property, money, or people. In fact, sometimes Jesus takes great delight in using feeble, seemingly small, seemingly powerless churches as a doorway into the kingdom of God. And so his letter to the church in Philadelphia is perhaps the most encouraging of all the seven letters. And there's three things I want us to think about from this letter this morning. First of all, uh, let's think about an open door to gospel opportunities. An open door to gospel opportunities. Look again at chapter 3, verse 8. Jesus says, I know your works. As we've seen over the last few weeks, Jesus says this to every church to whom he writes a letter. To every single one of them, he says, I know your works. And sometimes that's a very challenging, convicting word because the works of the church aren't particularly good. Uh, in Sardis, for example, Jesus said to the church in Sardis that their works were utterly lifeless. He says, you have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Your works are useless. Sometimes when Jesus says, I know your works, it's a huge encouragement to the church that he's writing to. And that's what, that was the case for the church in Philadelphia. He's, when he says, when Jesus says, I know your works, it's a wonderful encouragement to this church. Philadelphia was a city built on a high plateau uh, along one of the main highways across Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. It was a melting pot of languages and religions and cultures. People would be traveling along this main highway. They would stop in Philadelphia for maybe a few days or longer, maybe a few months or even years. They would take the, some of the, the culture and the trends and the fashions that they picked up in Philadelphia, they would take them with them. <coughs> Philadelphia had a reputation in particular as a city that passed on Greek culture and religion. But Jesus sees something else going on in the city of Philadelphia. He sees his church not passing on fashion trends or politics, but passing on the gospel. The church in Philadelphia was busy proclaiming Jesus. Despite whatever opposition they faced, as we'll see in a moment, 
despite perhaps a lack of size or a lack of power. Just look at what Jesus says in verse 8. He says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Those are some of the most encouraging words in all the seven letters in Revelation 2 and 3. Here's perhaps a, what seemed a feeble but faithful little church. In fact, the whole letter, Jesus doesn't have one rebuke, not one correction to make to the church in Philadelphia. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily that they weren't, in fact, we know for sure, in fact, that they weren't a perfect church. There is no perfect church on earth. But there was nothing that rose to the level of Jesus having to outright correct it or rebuke it or to carry out discipline on them. Generally speaking, all things equal, this was a faithful, hardworking, gospel-driven church. Jesus says they have but little power. Perhaps Jesus sent this letter to Philadelphia at a time when they weren't seeing that many converts. Or perhaps they sent it at a time when they had just sent out a new batch of missionaries. Church history indicates that the, the church in Philadelphia was very much a, a missionary sending church. In fact, there was a, a church remained active in Philadelphia for hundreds of years after this letter that Jesus wrote to them. They were a sending church. As I said, they were on this corridor from east to west across Asia Minor, and they sent people out east and west with the gospel. But one of the things about sending people out is that the church that's left behind can sometimes feel a little parlous, a little small, a little feeble. But Jesus gives them wonderful encouragement. He says, I know your works. I know what you have been doing. I know that you have been faithful. And I have set before you an open door that no one is able to shut. What exactly does Jesus mean by this open door? Well, as I mentioned earlier, he's talking here about his authority as the king of the kingdom of God, the one who ultimately decides upon who has access, who is welcomed into the kingdom of God. And he's saying to the church in Philadelphia that despite how feeble you may feel, your place in my kingdom is secure. I've welcomed you in. No one is going to cast you out. But he also seems to be saying to them that he has given them an opportunity to invite other people into the kingdom of God. He has given them an opportunity to proclaim the gospel. The Apostle Paul uses this language of an open door several times in his letters. And every time Paul uses that phrase, an open door, he's referring to opportunities to preach the gospel. Uh, Colossians 4 verse 3, for example, Paul asks the Colossians to pray that, quote, God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. He says something similar in 1 Corinthians 16. And so if we assume that Jesus is using the phrase in the same way, he is telling his church in Philadelphia that they have an opportunity to be witnesses for him in their city. And this despite however feeble or powerless they might feel. 
And friends, it's easy for the Christian church in our day to think, well, we have very little power. We're facing more and more opposition. We're facing a society that increasingly just, it's not even that they're in some cases hostile to the gospel. It's just they don't care. They just don't want to listen. But friends, Jesus is in charge of our witnessing opportunities. If he wants his church to go on proclaiming the gospel, calling people to repentance, sharing with people the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, no one is able to shut the door if Jesus decides to open the door. No one is able to shut the door if Jesus has decided to open the door. Has Jesus opened the door for us? I believe he has. Upon arriving here last few months, I see a Bible-hungry congregation. I see a faithful, eager community of people who want to hear God's word and who want to prioritize our, our witness and, and perhaps get back to some of our witness to the wider community as soon as we possibly can. Perhaps the last few years, you have felt somewhat powerless or feeble at times. Well, despite having little power, Jesus commanded the church in Philadelphia because they had kept his word and not denied his name. And that's true of this congregation as well. And here we are met together this morning, quite literally, because of an open door. God has graciously provided somewhere for us to meet all together. And he's ended a vacancy and he has granted continued freedom to publicly preach his, his word. And he's placed us in a town with almost nothing in it except houses full of people. And unless I'm mistaken, I don't think all those thousands of people are going to worship services this morning. Friends, God has set before us an open door. I don't know how wide he has opened it. I don't know for how long it will stay open. Pray with me that he opens it wide and for a long time. But we don't have to be a, a big church with a beautiful building of our own and lots of busy ministries going on to be given an open door by Jesus. Philadelphia perhaps didn't have some of those things, but Jesus still opened a door for them. Are you, am I willing to take opportunities, the open doors that we have with our children, our grandchildren, to share with them the good news of Jesus Christ? Are we willing to do that with our neighbors and our colleagues and our teammates? Perhaps there are doors open, not just for us as a congregation, but for you personally, opportunities that no one else has but you with certain people, be it one or two or a handful. Are we willing to pray and practically provide for others who have been sent to places we haven't been sent with the good news of the gospel to France and to Spain and Ireland, Asia, Africa, and so on? I believe that's one of the responsibilities of the church in our part of the world today. Uh, if you read about what's going on in the world today, God is amazingly and powerfully. There is revival happening in countries that on the face of it, you would think there's no chance for the gospel. There is far more happening in terms of people coming to faith in places like Iran and China than there is in countries like ours. But what we can do is we can provide prayer, we can provide funding, we can provide resources for those baby churches and baby pastors that will need help in the years ahead. There are open doors, friends, right here 
and far afield as well. Let's make it a point of prayer that Jesus Christ would fling open more doors to the kingdom of God through our witness as a community in this place. So an open door to gospel opportunities. Secondly, this morning, an open door to gospel opposition. An open door to gospel opposition. Jesus says at the end of verse 8 that the church in Philadelphia has kept his word and not denied his name. And I think it's safe to assume there that they've done that despite severe pressure to do exactly that. The church in Philadelphia, very similar situation to the other churches we've looked at in terms of the type of city that they lived in and the type of opposition they faced. They faced the temptation to deny Christ. And to take part in idolatry and whatever else was going on. And Jesus commends Philadelphia for not compromising. Not denying him. But his words in this letter also leave the church in no doubt that with their gospel opportunity will come gospel opposition. And probably they already knew this. Look at verse 9. He says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan... Who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Jesus also described the Jews in his letter to Smyrna as a synagogue of Satan. Very, very strong language. We, we thought a little bit about the explanation of it when we looked at the letter to Smyrna. <coughs> but as I said then, ultimately this is not an anti-Jewish statement from Jesus. Or an anti-Semitic statement from Jesus. Jesus himself was Jewish. He is the king of the Jews. He is the son of David. But as the king of the Jews, Jesus gets to decide who are truly his people and who are not. And the New Testament makes very clear that no ethnic group, whether it's Jewish people, Ulster Protestant people, or anyone else, no one is automatically part of God's family simply because of biology or ethnicity. It's faith in Christ. It's allegiance to Jesus that is the deciding factor. And whatever it was that the Jews in Philadelphia were doing, they could keep calling themselves God's true people all they wanted. But if they were opposing the church, the true people of Jesus Christ, they weren't God's people. They were agents of Satan, as any group of people are, Jewish or otherwise, who oppose the church. Here's the point when Jesus opens a door for gospel opportunity, usually it will come with gospel opposition. And as we've seen already in some of the other letters, often that opposition comes from people who sound very pious, who are established and respected figures in society like these Jewish people would have been. People who perhaps even have the, have the claim to be Christians, but who ultimately are serving Satan's cause rather than Christ's. Not everyone who has the title of reverend is a true minister of the gospel. Not everyone who has the, the word Christian in their social media profile truly is a Christian. Not everyone who talks about the love and acceptance of Jesus really knows anything about Jesus at all. And such people, friends, will put stumbling blocks in the way of gospel opportunities. We're seeing it more and more today. You'll maybe have heard about the university chaplain who explained the biblical understanding of marriage and got reported to the police for hate speech. 
uh, the street preacher who simply read aloud the words of Genesis. He wasn't even uh, using his own words. He was reading the words of Scripture itself, and he got arrested for doing so in England a few weeks ago. And we know similar stories becoming more and more frequent. And that's just our own nation. As you were hearing last Lord's Day, far worse is happening in places like Eritrea and Nigeria and North Korea. An open door to gospel opportunity is also an open door to gospel opposition. <clears throat> but look what Jesus says about the opposition to the Philadelphia church. What's going to happen to it? He says at the end of verse 9, Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Notice, first of all, friends, Jesus loves his church. Jesus loves his church. Let's not rush past that. Jesus loves us. He loves you. He loves me. He loves this congregation. He loves every true Bible-believing Bible-proclaiming congregation of his people. But he also says this synagogue of Satan, these opposing Jews will come and bow down before the feet of Christ's people. Now there's different things this might refer to, but the word for bow down there in the original, every other time it's used in Revelation, <clears throat> it's used to describe voluntary worship. Voluntary worship, either people gladly choosing to worship God or people gladly choosing to worship idols. And so there's perhaps a strong case to be made that these Jews coming and bowing down at the feet of believers, it's actually a promise that eventually these Jews might repent, that they might come alongside the, uh, the, the true church, and they might bow down and worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and several times in the book of Isaiah, God says that unbelievers from various Gentile nations will come and will bow down at the feet of God's people and, and worship him. We read an example of that earlier in Isaiah 45. And so again, friends, Jesus is emphasizing here that the true Israel, God's true people, the people who believe Jesus to be the Messiah, that the mission of the church is to make Christ known to all people, and that people from all nations, whether Jew or Gentile, will make themselves known as true people of Christ by coming and bowing down before him, by dropping their gospel opposition and joining with the church of Jesus. It's important to remember, friends, that there is always the possibility that those opposed to the gospel will eventually become believers in the gospel. And we shouldn't give up on those who even at times show incredible hostility to our own personal efforts to witness to them or to the, the efforts of the church in general. There is always the possibility that someone opposed to the gospel today could be won by the gospel tomorrow. But if they are not, and if gospel opposition continues, look what Jesus says in verse 10. He says, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now again, it's a challenging verse. There's a lot of debate over exactly what Jesus is referring to when he says those, uh, when he talks about this hour of trial coming on the earth. But that phrase, those who dwell on the earth, in Revelation, 
It's a phrase that's always used in Revelation to describe unbelievers. It's used a few times in the rest of the book. And so Jesus is saying here, friends, that there is going to be a time of pain and trial that comes on the earth, but it will most deeply and severely impact on those who are not his people, those who remain opposed to the gospel. Christ's true people will be preserved from this hour of trial. It won't be the ruin of us as it will be the ruin of others. As our world experiences war and famine and earthquakes and fires and disease, Christians might not always be physically kept from those things, but we are spiritually kept from those things. Those things aren't our ultimate doom and destruction as they are for unbelievers. That's why we were singing earlier, or reading earlier from Psalm 121. Uh, the Lord will keep you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. It's meaning that in the ultimate sense, spiritually speaking, we are headed for resurrection. That whatever hour of trial comes on the earth, it's not our ultimate death and destruction. Paul said in Romans chapter 8, Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. He goes on, he says, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wonderful, wonderful words. Friends, gospel opportunities come with gospel opposition. Maybe some of you have experienced that opposition very personally in your families, your workplaces, your friendship circles. Maybe you need to be prepared and you, and you will face that type of opposition. But friends, we can trust the Lord Jesus to deal with that opposition when and how he sees fit. Sometimes he will turn gospel opposition into gospel allies, like Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul the Apostle. Other times, Jesus will bring judgment on his gospel opponents through the trials and hardships of this life, but ultimately only a foretaste of far worse to come in the next. Whatever the case, friends, we trust Jesus to deal with gospel opposition, even as we carry on taking our gospel opportunities. So an open door to gospel opportunities, an open door to gospel opposition. And thirdly, and finally this morning, an open door to our glorious future. An open door to our glorious future. Verse 11 is another encouraging call to persevere. We're, we're seeing this all through all the letters. Jesus says in verse 11, I am coming soon. Friends, Jesus is coming soon. Even if he doesn't come before your dying day, our lives are short. 70, 80, 90 years at best. And then we are with Jesus one way or another. He is coming soon. Do you believe that? Do you live every single day in light of that? If a couple knows that they are going to soon be married, their official marital status might not change until the big day but they start making plans and prep. It affects their lives even now. Maybe at some point they merge bank accounts. Maybe they begin looking for a house. 
They begin plans for the big day. If Jesus is coming soon, it should affect our priorities and our time and our money and our gifts here and now. Does it, does it encourage us and motivate us to maintain our worship and witness that Jesus is coming soon? He goes on, verse 11, Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. We've seen elsewhere in Revelation, the crown is just a, a way of summing up eternal life the reward that we will receive for faithfulness to Christ. Verse 12, goes on in verse 12, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And that image of a pillar would have resonated with the church in Philadelphia. Uh, in 17 AD, there was a particularly bad earthquake in Philadelphia. There were a series of earthquakes in the region over the years, but there was a particularly bad one in 17 AD, and the whole city had had to be rebuilt from rubble. And so quite possibly, the people of this city, they never quite felt secure in their own homes. They were always wondering, when's the next earthquake going to come along? How badly is the house going to be wrecked the next time? And Jesus says to those people that the reward for faithfulness to him will be an unshakable, immovable, permanent dwelling place. A dwelling place that can never be shaken or destroyed. The temple of God. And as we'll see towards the end of Revelation, the temple of God is not a, a physical structure uh, like Solomon's temple in Jerusalem was or the, the pagan temples of Philadelphia or Ephesus. The word temple just means dwelling place. And our final dwelling place, as Revelation makes clear, is the new earth. It is the company and the presence, physical as well as spiritual, of our King, the Lord Jesus Christ, walking with us on the earth. We're seeing this all through the, the seven letters, friends, that <coughs> ultimately the promises that Jesus makes to these seven churches, they are bound up with simply being with him. And after the year that we've had, can we all relate somewhat to that, that it doesn't really matter what we have or where we are, that simply being with a loved one is reward in itself. A reward for faithfulness to Christ, for taking gospel opportunities in the face of gospel opposition, will to be simply to be with him. Let that be our motivation in the meantime. Jesus also says in verse 12, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. There's quite a lot in that, but really the key to it is that word name. Notice the word name keeps being used by Jesus. And again, this was particularly appropriate for the church in Philadelphia because this was a city that actually had temporarily had their name changed. Uh, after that earthquake in 17 AD, the name of the city was temporarily changed to Neo-Caesarea because the Roman emperor Tiberius had sponsored the rebuild of the city after the earthquake. And so in honor of the emperor, the name of the city was temporarily changed. Our name is a fundamental part of who we are. Uh, your surname might tell you where your ancestors are, what part of the world you live in. 
uh, and so forth. If you change your name because of marriage, uh, it's a fundamental aspect of who you are. You're now a married person. Your life is bound up with the life of someone else. Well, three times Jesus emphasizes that the people of Philadelphia, they don't belong ultimately to Caesar. They don't belong to the city. They belong to Jesus. My, the name of my God, the name of my city, my own new name, Jesus says. We belong with him. Our allegiance is to him. Our identity is as citizens of, of his kingdom. This is why, friends, as Christians, we are not to get too concerned about national identity and political identity. Over the last few months, we have seen when people who place their whole identity in some political or, or national identity, when they get angry and disappointed because their man-made idols have let them down. We saw the U.S. Capitol building in America stormed by rioters. We have seen Ulster loyalists throwing bombs and bricks on the law enforcement officers of the very state that they claim to love so much. We've seen football fans storming the stadium of their favorite team in a riot, annoyed and disappointed. In all these cases, they're all annoyed and disappointed because their sense of national identity or their man-made idols are letting them down. We see it also in the so-called Holy Land with <coughs> Israelis and Palestinians and the horrendous violence between them. All of that, friends, is a sense of identity and in some cases idolatry, letting people down, leaving them insecure, leaving them with a sense of identity crisis or identity under threat. Ultimately, friends, I really don't care what country God calls me to live in or what particular flag that country wants to wave. There's nothing wrong with patriotism to some degree. But our primary identity and allegiance is to King Jesus and the new Jerusalem of his people from all nations of the world. Paul says in Galatians 3, 26, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. He goes on, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Be a Christian is to have a new identity, to be citizens of an everlasting kingdom that will have no end. <coughs> Perhaps sometimes that future with Jesus and his people on the earth seems very far away, especially when you do turn on the news and look at riots and rockets flying over Israel-Palestine. Perhaps on a, a Tuesday afternoon amid the busyness of another week, it's hard to think about heaven, to really, to really grasp it, to really be able to, to look forward to it. Perhaps sometimes it seems to you a world that we'll never reach. Well, dear Christian friend, Jesus says, I have the key of David. I have set before you an open door, not only an open door for gospel opportunities, but an open door to a glorious future. Jesus, by his life and death and resurrection, has become the key holder of the kingdom of God. He has earned the authority to judge the world and save his people. In the meantime, he calls us to take whatever opportunities we have to call people to put their trust in something far better than a flag or a team 
or a gender identity or any other type of identity. We put our trust in the one who is going to make all things new. And so friends, may Jesus throw open a wide door of opportunity for us to proclaim this wonderful message. May we hold fast and patiently endure even in the face of opposition. And may we look forward to our glorious future with our glorious King. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Let's stand as we pray together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thank you for the wonderful words of encouragement that Jesus shared with the church in Philadelphia. And Lord, we look over history and, and whilst we know of how uh, the church in the wider world went through a time of real darkness in terms of its organization and doctrine and so forth, we give thanks also that there was a church in Philadelphia that stayed faithful for hundreds of years, sending out missionaries, proclaiming the gospel, even standing firm in the face of uh, militant Islam as it rose up in the, in the Middle Ages. And we rejoice, Lord, that it is possible for a local church to have a ministry and a witness for hundreds of years if it is your will and if Christ does not return first. And so we do pray, Heavenly Father, that you would be pleased to grant us an open door, a wide open door here in Dremore. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would bless our witness, whether we are worshiping in this building or our own building or some other building, whether our numbers are large or small, we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would be pleased to bless our witness in this place, that you would be pleased to come among us in the power of your Holy Spirit. Give us courage, Lord, in the face of any opposition we may face, either personally or corporately, and help us, Lord, to take the gospel opportunities that you have put in front of us. We ask all these things in and through our Savior, Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm. <clears throat>